Last week in our study in Acts, we followed along as Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark sailed from Paphos on the island of Cyprus to the mainland of Asia Minor, which we know today as southern Turkey. Doing so, they left the homeland of Barnabas for the homeland of Paul. Arriving in Perga, John Mark left the missionary group to return to Jerusalem, while Paul and Barnabas journeyed through the rugged, bandit-plagued Taurus Mountains to city in Antioch. I don't have to remind you what city in Antioch is, I'm not sure. So, today's study in, is in Acts 13, 13 through 23, and I'll read through it completely first. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Sidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, the other word used in the translations is encouragement, so I've been reading multiple. If you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that... He gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring... God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. We covered 13 through 14a last week, so we'll start at verse 14b today. As was Paul's custom on the Sabbath day, he and Barnabas went to the synagogues and took their seats. Now, I have been taking a dive into Jewish order of worship this week there are there were five parts to the worship service in the synagogue at the time of Paul and Barnabas Uh, this is this is one of just two accounts in the New Testament that gives a fairly detailed summary of a synagogue worship service the first part functioned like a call to worship the recitation of the Shema Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. A Jew was required to say that two times a day. So in the worship service, they got the first one done. I'm going to assume that 
was one of the last things they said at night, but I do not know that for certain. But the Shema was the first thing that they said. Next would come prayers. There were two different types of prayers, and for the life of me, I could not find out exactly what those were. I know what they are in the modern one, but not in the biblical ancient time uh, service. Then a reading from the Torah was given. The Torah, as we know, are the first five books of the Bible. The whole Old Testament to the Jews was called the Tanakh. But they would have a reading first from the Torah. The first five books of the Bible. Now I have taught this, and we have looked into what the modern teaching is. The modern service is broken down into 54 readings of the Torah that cover the first five books completely of the Bible in the surface. It's 54, and somebody can correct me on this because I took this right off a Jewish website. It's 54 readings so that there is a reading for every week of a leap year. Why that's not 53, I do not know. I'm just telling you what I read, okay? I thought there were 52 weeks in a year and uh, on leap year you might have an extra Sunday. But, there are 54 readings. For non-leap years, by the way, two shorter passages would be pushed together uh, and read at the same time so that they would still have a year's worth of readings. In Paul and Barnabas's day, however, and this is important, remember I told you that uh, in the readings, well, I'll cover that in just a second. In Paul and Barnabas's day, however, until the fall of the temple, there were 155 readings. It was a triennial reading list. They would stretch it out for almost three and a half years, the reading of the Torah. The passage from the prophets, unlike today, was not spelled out. And we're going to see what, why this matters so much in the church. The person who picked out the, the reading from the prophets, it was their choice, and they would tie it to the weekly reading of the Torah of the first five books. So the one who is called on to read the reading from the prophets, that was not spelled out at this time. In today's synagogue services, both the law and the prophet readings, as I said, are in a set weekly schedule. Then next came the sermon. And they did have sermons in the Jewish service, which drew from the Torah reading. The person to give the sermon could be any man attending the, temp, uh, the service and would be chosen by the rulers of the synagogue. Any man was capable of giving this sermon and the readings. In fact, Bar Mitzvah, which you all have heard of, was originally to mark the age at which you could read in the synagogue. Okay, we now have it saying it's when you become a man in the Jewish... Well, it's the same thing. When you become a man in Jewish life, you are qualified to read in the synagogue service or give a sermon. So that's what the Bar Mitzvah was all about. 
So Acts 13 verse 15 says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, meaning Saul and Barnabas, because I've been being wordy here, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Paul and Barnabas have, as visiting rabbis, thus been chosen to give a sermon and encouragement for those gathered. Now, you know, we would never call somebody out of, unless I was feeling poorly, uh, out of the pew to give a sermon. But I have been in churches that have done that. My daughter, before she uh, started going to her wonderful church in Rocky Mount, uh, went to a primitive Baptist service. Primitive Baptists are not that given to study. And their pastor did prepare a sermon, but many people speak extemporaneously. And if there is a visiting primitive Baptist pastor, they are called as an honor to also give a sermon. So you might be lucky enough, as I have been, to hear two sermons extemporaneously given. Now, if I was called on to give a sermon off the top of my head, that is exactly what you would get. You would get what's ever floating around in there, and it wouldn't be pretty. Trust me on this. But I have been in services where people have been called out of the pew to give a sermon. But Paul was different. He was a known quantity. Remember, this is his home country. People knew who Paul was. Paul was a rabbi. He, as I've pointed out many times, by the time he was 20, had one, had the equivalent of two doctorates, one in law and one in religion, in the Jewish religion. He was known for throughout the area because he had studied with Gamaliel. And we all know who Gamaliel was. I covered that fellow a while back. So this was a treat for the church and city in Antioch. They had a visiting rabbi to bring them a word. Paul, famous scholar. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Now, we are not told what scriptures were the readings for the week. We don't know what he was basing this off of. But God had prepared the time and Paul to address what the synagogue needed to hear. Normally in synagogue, one stood for the reading of the law and prophets and sat for the teaching. And there are two schools of thought on why Paul gives his sermon standing. First of all, Greek philosophers stood to give their teaching. So it might have been an affectation, but others point out that in the other uh, account of a synagogue teaching we have, sitting was given on the teaching, but Paul is standing. And they say that it's possible that Paul is giving an encouragement, not really a lecture on Scripture, whereas in the other case, it was a teaching on Scripture. And so it was given seating. In one of my daughter's other churches, you might think that she moves around a lot, but she didn't really. 
The Free Church of Scotland Continuing, and I just love that name, the Free Church of Scotland Continuing, when scripture is read, everybody stands, and you sit for the singing of the hymns, okay? I find that interesting. I have been in other churches, in Reformed Baptist churches, where you stand for the reading of scripture. But anyway, here Paul stands up to teach. Paul gestured with his hand to get the attention of those assembled and said, and the gesturing with the hand, some think that it was a noisy crowd, this was a common Jewish way to start a sermon, was to let people know that you were about to speak by gesturing with your hand. As So he gestures with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. As Paul knew there would be, there were God-fearing Gentiles in attendance that Sabbath day, along with those he called men of Israel, which is simply calling those who were born Hebrew by birth, or proselytes together, because in the United States, once you're made a citizen, you're an American. It's the same with the Jews. Once you were a proselyte, you were a man of Israel, and that's what you were called. So addressing... Those two groups attending the service, Paul commands them to listen because he is about to deliver the most important words any of them would ever hear. Paul's sermon that day followed typical Jewish structure, a retrospective first of the history of the nation of Israel. It's the same way that uh, Stephen, the Deacon Stephen started off his defense. He went through the history of Israel so that he could align himself with the teaching of 1,500 years so as not to be thought apart from them. Paul is not trying to separate himself from the Jewish synagogue. He is trying to bring them into compliance with the Messiah. Paul's sermon that day, as I said, follows the history of Israel. Verse 17 says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And Paul starts starts with God choosing this peculiar people called Israel and making those who came as paupers to Egypt, a great people. And then by his arm, as he says, he led them out. Paul is saying that there is a point to their history, that God has a reason and purpose for the people he chose that goes beyond what they can see. God has a purpose in making them a great nation. Verse 18 says, And for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness... And I love that term, okay? There are two terms. Ancient manuscripts are evenly divided by saying he put up with them in the wilderness and saying he was like a nursing father to them. Now, I've never heard the term nursing father to them, but that's what it says in about half the manuscripts. He either put up with them or he's like a nursing father, which means on the one hand, They were really hard to put up with. And on the other, they were like babies 
Okay, this is what we're getting at in the scripture here. And as we often say on these translations, I don't know why those translations are different. And nobody could give that to me. Either way it was, I think we get the drift. Paul moves quickly on in his brief recitation of Jewish history in uh, verse 19 and 28. He says, And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. So God has not only brought the Israelites out of Egypt and sustained them in the wilderness, but he has given them the land they now occupy removing seven nations to make way for God's people. Paul mentions it takes 450 years for God to complete the process. What looks to people um, as though God's promise is far off is only because of man's finite sight. You know, I like to put this back into terms we understand 450 years. Uh, We're talking... uh, 1550, you know, that's a long way back for us. And at this point, Jewish history had gone back 1600 years. That's, that's 400 AD to us. It does look a long way away. It looks like God's purpose will never be done. But God's plan is known to God from beginning to end and is not far off, but instead will be completed in God's perfect timing. Paul rushes on in verse 20b. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Well, Samuel was a judge also, actually, but he was a judge and a prophet. God's plan was to lead his obedient chosen himself through prophets that he personally chose. But the people of God's promise did not want to be set apart a holy nation set aside to God. Instead, they wanted to be common. They wanted to be like every other nation on earth and have a king. If the Sumerians can have a king, why can't I have a king? And they wanted a king. Verse 21 says, Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. A cynic would say that God chose a man who would fail as a leader and shepherd of Israel. But cynicism is not one of the attributes of God. I have no doubt that God chose the best man in Israel to be the king of Israel at that time. But God knew he would fail because God knows man. He would fail to his very humanness. One only needs to look at the leaders of this representative republic that we call the United States to see how well humans run their affairs. I'm here to tell you, it's not very well. Verse 22 says, And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. That David was a man after God's own heart is without dispute. The book of Psalms is a testimony to that. That David is considered Israel's, if not the world's, 
greatest king is also beyond dispute. He has been revered as such for 3,000 years now. Now, David's the greatest king that the world has known. David was also a coward. 1 Samuel 21, 10 through 22, 1 tells you about that. David was an adulterer. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through 4, will give you an account of that. David was a murderer, and 2 Samuel 12, 9, 12, 9 covers that. If the very best king that God has given mankind was a coward, an adulterer, and a murderer, it does not speak very well for the rest of us. Now, Paul has rushed through this history, just as I have rushed through it, because we've seen this before in Stephen's uh, defense, which I preached down at length. So I have given it about as much care as Paul gave. Maybe I gave it a little bit more than Paul gave, though Scripture really doesn't report, report word for word all of these sermons. But Paul rushed through it to get to the point, God has provided for mankind the only ruler they need, verse 23, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. This is the most important fact of history. God's providing not just to Israel, but to the world, a Savior. Now, I have talked before about how the Jews of today do not see Jesus as the Messiah. And I've covered this. I I can't remember if it was in a devotion or if it was in a sermon. But the Jews have 50 readings weekly to make a year. And then they repeat. It is 50 set readings of the Law and the Prophet. And they do not cover any messianic prophecies. And I have been wondering when that started. And I found it this week. Because in the triennial, in the ancient teachings, the messianic prophecies were well covered. It wasn't until the destruction of the temple. You remember that the Mishnah began being written by the post-temple priests and by the year 400 all AD all messianic prophecies had been removed from Jewish readings I am, have read previously and I have shared this previously that when messianic Jews go to a Jew and say read this and they give you something out of Isaiah or Micah and it is so obviously Jesus that the Jew says I'm not going to read that out of your New Testament. And the Messianic Jews will say, sorry, that's the Tanakh. This is your Bible. And they've never read it. And here's the thing. They haven't read it because it's not in their weekly readings. And their sermons are tied, as I've just said, to their weekly readings. If there is not a reference to Messianic prophecy in their weekly readings. They're not going to get it in a sermon either. It's one reason why at great length here in this church 
we read front to back New Testament and Old Testament, one book at a time, one chapter at a time, every week, along with selected psalms, so that we read everything in the Bible. And I don't know how many times one of you have come up to me and said, we just read this, you know, what does this mean? And, of course, I don't know, so I have to go look it up. But, if you do not read it, if it's not in, I call it a catechism, but in your in your liturgy, you're not going to get it in the Jewish church. So it's been removed. And it was removed intentionally because of how clear it was spelling out who the Messiah was. They weren't mistaken. All the Messianic prophecies have been intentionally removed. When I started this message, I mentioned that this passage in Acts was one of two thorough examples of a Jewish worship service. We're going to look at the other one. The other one is in Luke 4, verses... uh, Verses 16 through something, I wrote two, but I'm not going to go backward. And it says, And he, and the he was Jesus, came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And was, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Well, we've just read that he didn't just stand up to read. He was chosen by the synagogue, uh, the leader of the synagogue, to read a passage and to teach. And this is some background we just don't get in the scripture that I think is important. So, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue and on the Sabbath day he stood up to read because he was a famous teacher. They knew, and I'm not going to even read this part, they knew of the miracles he was doing. They wanted to see a miracle in the synagogue. They called him up to read because they they wanted to see what he was working. So, they called Jesus up as a famous, well-known rabbi to read the word of the prophet and to then give the sermon that goes along with the Torah reading and the prophet reading. Verse 17, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Okay. Here's a clue that they were big into messianic prophecies. They gave him the role of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I'm here to tell you that I went back and looked up the liturgy of the Jewish synagogue as it is today. And there are a few Isaiah readings, but this one is not among them. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is Psalm 61 verses 1 and 2. I almost read you verses 1 through 9 because it's all of a part. And I do not doubt that Jesus read all nine verses. The Jewish liturgy reads Psalm 60 
leaves out 61, 1 through 9, and picks up at verse 10 for the rest of Psalm 61. They specifically leave out what Jesus read. Do not think for a moment that this is accidental, okay? They do not want to read what Jesus is saying here. Isaiah 61, 1 through 9 is what Jesus read. And this might be the last time this messianic prophecy was read in a synagogue. And it was read by the Messiah himself. In the ancient triennial readings, the prophecies of the Messiah were a favorite reading. Israel was looking forward to the Savior with joy and anticipation. But today, the reading of the prophets does not look to the future, but the readings look back on the glory that was Israel. That is what they are treasuring. They no longer are looking for a Messiah. And if you ask a Jew that, and I've heard rabbis say that, they're not looking for the Messiah. But there's a very good reason they're not looking for the Messiah. He already came. He already came, and the Jews know it. And how do they know it? Because the Messiah himself told them. Verses 20 through 21 in Luke. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Okay, he's sitting down now to give the sermon. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now Isaiah had not yet been removed from Jewish teaching. Everyone hearing Jesus that day knew exactly what he was saying. And you can tell by what comes next. He was saying that he himself was the long-awaited Messiah. The rest of the passage reads... And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he, Jesus, said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They wanted wanted to see a miracle. They knew what Jesus was saying. They claimed to be the Messiah. They knew of his miracles. And they say, do here in your hometown what you did in Capernaum. But Jesus said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, meaning no rain, big drought came. And a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. He was sent to nobody in Israel. But only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath. God's prophets 
were speaking and healing, but not in Israel. And you have to wonder about that. But the Jews understood that God was not working in Israel any longer. Jesus is pointing out that Israel rejected Elijah and his miracles were worked in Sidon and Elisha's miracles for a Syrian. Likewise would Israel reject Jesus. Jesus' death marked not just Israel's rejection of the Messiah, but God's rejection of Judaism. As it had become. How do we know this? Because of the destruction of the temple, as Jesus prophesied. Without the sacrificial system of the temple, true Jewish practice was ended. And this is not my opinion, okay? I tell you, I did some research on this. As I was researching Jewish services of biblical times and today, I came across this explanation of modern Jewish liturgy by a rabbi who's based in Berkeley right now. Now, you might say, Mike, that's cheating. You went to Berkeley? And we know, never mind. I'm just saying, this is a modern-day rabbi who says, and, and this rabbi is talking about how the service goes. The service addresses two specific sets of mitzvot, which are commandments. The first set is to say the Shema twice daily, Shema twice daily, and I covered that. The second set is a little bit more complex. We say the Amidah, the standing prayer, remember I told you there were two prayers that are said, in order to fulfill our duty to maintain the temple sacrifices. So let me say this again. We say the standing prayer in order to fulfill our duty to maintain the temple sacrifices. Back when the temple stood in Jerusalem, we sacrificed animals according to the directions in the book of Leviticus. The book of Deuteronomy makes it clear that we are not to make sacrifices anywhere other than the temple in Jerusalem. So, once the Romans destroyed the temple, we had a problem. How could we meet our obligation to maintain the sacrificial cult? Now listen carefully. The Jewish people came up with an ingenious replacement for the sacrifices. This is a direct quote, by the way. It's my old cut and paste. The Jewish people came up with an ingenious replacement for the sacrifices. Instead of sacrificing animals, we would make sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. If you read the first four chapters of Leviticus, you will see that every sacrifice was stacked upon the altar in a very specific way. Ever since the loss of the temple, Jews have kept the obligation to sacrifice by chanting the stacked prayers of the Amidah. Did you notice what was said here? The Jewish people came with, up with an ingenious replacement for the sacrifice. The people came up with an ingenious replacement. Not God. It does not say God gave them an ingenious replacement. It does not say that God gave them this instruction on how to continue their sacrifice. The people came up with it. And my word on this is that Judaism is not a religion of God anymore. It's a religion of the people. They came up with a workaround. 
that they made up out of whole cloth to replace, to ignore what God did by having the temple destroyed. Judaism is in the rabbi's own word a religion of people, not God. God removed the temple and the sacrificial system, but the Jewish people replaced them with something they made up. But the real truth is that God came up with an ingenious replacement for animal sacrifice. He sent his son as a living sacrifice. God removed the temple and the temporary sacrificial system when he supplied the true sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ. No other sacrifice is needed or accepted. The stacked prayers of the Jews avail nothing. God did not ordain them. Nor does he accept them. God alone provided the sacrifice. It was up to the Jews to accept that sacrifice. It is up to us to accept the sacrifice. God came up with an ingenious replacement. Jesus Christ. And the Jews are to this day, studiously ignoring him. Let's close in prayer.